If you haven't been with us on Sunday evenings, we studied the church uh, as it began in Acts, right off the heels of the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been studying it for the la- about six months or so, and really excited about the next phase of this study that we're entering into. Um, Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, has just been converted, has just been saved. Not only has he been converted, but he's been commissioned because he didn't just join the church, he became a leader in the church, which uh, again, the, the book of Acts is full of surprises, as we'll see in the title uh, suggests tonight. We're going to see more of those surprises um, in uh, what God has in store for us this evening. Um, but uh, so far, uh, we've tried to break down Acts in phases. And if you've been with us, you'll recognize some of these that I'll put on the screen in a minute. Uh, understanding how one phase has led to another. Of course, um, in the beginning of Acts, it was literally the beginning of the church. And we talked about um, that opening phase that is in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3. We'll go um, from there. We look at the church's boom as it came on the scene um, after Pentecost. um, There was a boom in the growth of the church. And then the church was very bold as they went before the very people that had crucified Jesus with the gospel and stood um, boldly in places that many would have never even dared to go. Uh, And then we see that there was a breakout moment uh, as Stephen uh, became a prominent member of the church. And as God began to raise up new people and these breakout characters began uh, to to, uh, make way. Stephen, Philip, and others, and they begin to move beyond boundaries, beyond the boundaries that they had put on themselves and that the world had put on them. Uh, Obviously, the church began as a very local movement pertaining and and there in Jerusalem, but it would soon move beyond the borders of Judea. Um, we, We see the potential the church has, how it is truly in line with the vision that Jesus cast back in Acts 1 when he said, you will go to the whole world, yet Satan countered the breakout and the movement beyond boundaries. He countered that breakout with an outbreak of persecution uh, as the church, as the state-sponsored persecution led by one Saul of Tarsus uh, began to uh, bring uh, death, to the, uh, began to pile a death toll up for the church. And as a result of that, the church is scattered. The church is scattered at, from beyond uh, Jerusalem and the people begin to run for their lives. But also the church is scattered in that there isn't really a concentrated mission. There isn't really a team that is organized around how to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Uh, immediately after this outbreak, break is organized, the state-sponsored onslaught of persecution, uh, we read about the pockets of evangelism that break out beyond Jerusalem in areas like Samaria, uh, even beyond uh, to, to, the, to the north of Syria. Yet this movement isn't organized. Uh, it, it's scattered. Uh, it, so that, that's true that the church is scattered in multiple ways. But what was organized was the persecution led by Saul. Uh, His terror left the church frozen in Jerusalem, and he then began tracking the growth of the church as it spread through the synagogues of Caesarea and Damascus, north of Israel. So while the church still had momentum, it was far less organized than the opposition was. Uh, While there was panic across Judea, there was no panic whatsoever in heaven. So if you're reading the story, you get to Acts 8, and it seems like things are turning for the worse. There's panic in Judea. There's panic in Jerusalem. There's panic in the church because it seems as if they don't have the ability to counter this opposition. But what we learned in our study so far is what often causes us to panic is just another part of God's plan. What often causes us to panic is just another pillar in God's plan. And that's why Acts 9 is such a watershed moment 
in not only church history, but world history. Uh, it gives us such a powerful reminder of God's sovereignty and his faithfulness, of his power and his plan and his ability to redeem. And in Acts 9, it puts to rest any fear that the church may have had because God confronts their greatest enemy in Saul of Tarsus, preventing him from taking more lives. And again, Acts 9 opens up and he's breathing out threats. He's hunting Christians down with the power of the state, with the backing of the religious institution in Jerusalem. He is hunting Christians down. But Acts 9 puts to rest any fears the church may have had because God confronts this enemy. And it's in that story that we get maybe the clearest picture of just how God was going to operate in this new age. And it's surprising because we think of God confronting an enemy with sword and shield. We think of God confronting an enemy like he did in the Old Testament where armies begin to fall by the wayside by the thousands. We think of that story and, and uh, the, the Old Testament where an angel slays 180,000 uh, Babylonian troops that come up against the people of Israel, right? We think of those moments of God confronting the opposition. But in Acts, God confronts the opposition in a different way. Now, remember back when Jesus was on the cross, he was being mocked and cursed by even those that were crucified with him. They were saying things like, if you can save others, why can't you save yourself? Call God uh, to, 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 to slay all your enemies and, and come off the cross and set up your kingdom. Uh, remember, Jesus began interceding for those around him rather than judging them, rather than condemning them, rather than saving himself. He begins praying for them. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This leads one of the thieves to confessing that Jesus clearly was of God. He was righteous. The thief confesses his own sin, his own worthiness of dying. And actually, he begins to pray to Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom, not expecting that he has anything to look forward to in his own afterlife? So Jesus, of course, upon his resurrection, this thief remains dead. Now we believe the thief was saved. Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. But when Jesus raises from the dead, the thief did not raise. He remained dead. Of course, he was in heaven. However, the resurrection sent a message that God wasn't just going to forgive sins, that God wasn't just going to change, going to make sure our eternity was settled, but God was going to do something now. God was going to make a difference now. He was going to change lives. He was going to resurrect lives that otherwise were at dead ends, not only in eternity, but here on earth. So when Stephen is being stoned or prior to being stoned, remember Stephen prays a similar prayer that Jesus did. He says, Father, do not hold them accountable for their sin. And one Saul of Tarsus leading the charge, hears Stephen and no doubt was impacted by that prayer. So just like the thief on the cross, Saul heard that prayer and God began to melt his heart in that moment. So when Jesus confronts Saul, Saul quickly repents. But unlike the thief, Saul's life was just beginning. And that's why I think it's a better example for you and I tonight of what God can do for a sinner's heart. Of course, he saves us for eternity. That's pertaining to the thief who was just about to die. But for Saul... It points a, paints a picture of something even better for you and I here in the moment. Saul is an even better example than the thief of what grace can do because God finds someone at their worst and he restores us to his best, to his ideal, which is what he does with Saul. The thief's conversion was just a taste of what was to come, what was punctuated and enabled by the resurrection. We cite the thief as the, the prime example, but really Saul is truly the rule of how God can change somebody's life. 
And that's why Saul's conversion sent a second wave and wind of momentum through the church. It's why Acts 9 tells us that the churches begin to grow and begin to prosper once again after Saul joined because it sent a, a, a momentum that truly encouraged and emboldened the people of what God was able to do, the power available to anyone that would believe. And of course, we know that Saul was not just a normal member of the church. Saul would become instrumental. Next slide. Saul would become instrumental in organizing the church's mission as much or more as he was in spearheading the persecution. So that's what makes Saul such a remarkable character. As he was spearheading the persecution, he takes that energy and that, that vision and, 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 and channels it into his part of the church as he would become a leader in the church. The next wave would continue to express the radical and revolutionary work that God was wanting to do and was able to do through the church. Now we've talked about how they already were moving beyond boundaries. Remember back in Acts 8 with Philip's mission to Samaria and then the encounter with the eunuch, we talked about how there were big and bold steps that you'll remember those were not met with a lot of resistance, even though the Samaritans were enemies of the Jews, even though this eunuch was an outcast uh, to the Jewish religion. Because in this phase, the gospel was changing lives of people that that were contextually likely candidates as in the neighbors of the Jews in Samaria, this Ethiopian man who was seeking the Lord and was trying to get into the temple but was turned away, still it made sense that these people would find their way to the Lord or would find their way into the church. These were people the Jews already dealt with and that they would have been comfortable dealing with more so than what was coming next in the plan or compared to those that were coming next in the plan. But When God saved Saul, even though he was Jewish, but he was a murderer, and this signaled that something big was on the horizon. See, Saul's conversion signaled that God was really going to shake things up in a good way, but in ways that might first seem unlikely or unbelievable. Now, we witness as much because what happened when Saul visited his local church in Damascus, what happened when Saul visited the, lo- visited the church in Jerusalem? People were skeptical, weren't they? No one believed that Saul of Tarsus, the murderer, had become a Christian. They thought it was a plot. They thought it was a trick. They were skeptical. They did not want to let him in. It was Ananias and Barnabas who stood up for him when dozens of others said, whoa, 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 we don't really trust this guy because God's grace surprised them. As the church is going to be again and again over the next couple of chapters, the church is going to be skeptical of God's grace, but they're going to be surprised by God's grace just the same. We're going to see how skeptical of what, how they're skeptical of what grace can do and how they're surprised by what grace does. Because remember what happened when Ananias heard that Saul was coming to visit him? Ananias said, God, don't you know who this man is? Of course, God chuckled. I, I don't, he doesn't say he chuckled, but I would think he chuckled. He laughed at Ananias. Of course, I know who Saul is. I just saved him. Of course, you are skeptical of what I can do, aren't you, Ananias? When Saul of Tarsus visited the church in Damascus, the people that he was headed to kill, don't you know who this man is, God? Of course, I know who this man is. I'm looking forward to you getting to know who this man is as well. I want to say a word ahead of time, though. In times that we'll witness the church being skeptical, pay attention to how God interjects and changes the tide of the story. We saw this with Ananias. We saw this with Barnabas. And and when when he said, hey, let's let this guy in, we will see this in Acts 10, Acts 11, and Acts 12. You could almost call this four-chapter window uh, as the church begins expanding, as the gospel begins widening its impact. 
in unexpected and awe-inspiring ways. You could call this section of Acts from Acts 9 to Acts 12 surprised by grace, or at least that's what we're going to call it. Uh, Tonight, our focus is going to be the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10, uh, and I don't want to ignore what happens at the end of 9 because it builds up in an unnoticed way. It builds up to what really goes on in 10, which is such an important chapter. The scene is going to shift back to Peter. We've been talking about Saul. We've been talking about Philip. Peter's been kind of on the the down low for a while, but we're going to talk about why he was kind of behind the scenes. The focus shifts back to Peter. Of course, Peter had been the guy from Acts 1 to Acts 5. Um, A lot has changed since then, though. Uh, It seems that just after Stephen's death and after Saul's attack began, the church put the 12 underground, if you will. It says there in Acts 8 that they were mourning Stephen's death and they kind of went into hiding. Not because they were afraid, but because it seemed very likely that heroes would die in this story. The church began understanding that it was important that the apostles, with the information they had, the stories they had yet to write down, they had yet to preserve, it was important the apostles hunker down and help get the story of Jesus written down before they risked losing them uh, to the persecution that no, that no doubt was on the horizon. Of course, all the apostles would indeed lose their, lose their life, save John, within 30 years. So it was important that the apostles hunker down and begin to write down what they had learned and heard from Jesus because there was no New Testament at this point, right? They were living it. There was no New Testament, and God, of course, was using them to preserve the stories of Jesus. Remember back in Acts chapter 6, Peter, when they were nominating the first deacons, Peter said, we will devote ourselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. Now, I think that part of the underlying message here that we don't really pick up on is Peter is saying, hey, we've got a story to tell with our words, but God wants us to write this down. So that's when you have Matthew, that's when you have John, that's when you have Peter by way of John Mark. They begin writing down these stories that would become Matthew, Mark, uh, and John. Of course, Luke would come later with a similar story. But that's when you have this development of the New Testament that we, of course, have in our laps tonight. Now, we believe, according to Acts 12, the headquarters of the church at this time, they had moved from the upper room because that was the obvious place that people knew they were living in. They moved to the home of John Mark, Mark. Mark, that of course wrote the gospel of Mark. Mark, we believe, wrote the version that Peter told him that God inspired through Peter. So of course it was during this time, we believe, that Peter and John Mark began working together on the gospel of Mark that would take years to get just right. And of course, even more years to get spread around the community. So during this few year period, that's what we believe was going on. But when that project was finished, Peter was quick to rejoin the mission field. And Acts 9, verse 32, is where his story picks right back up where it left off. So I want to read verse 32 through 43 to get the story, uh, to, get, to paint the picture for us tonight of Peter as he re-enters the mission field. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwell in Lydda. There he found a certain man named um, Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. 
And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and they sent two men to him, imploring him to not delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, saying to the, turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all, the, all of Joppa. And many believed on the Lord or trusted in the Lord. So it was that while he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, and this is so important to the next part of the story, a tanner. And we'll talk about what that means in just a few minutes. So Peter makes his way east of Judea to the Phoenician territory, the old Philistine territory, and he ends up in Joppa. Along the way, God performs signs through him that confirm his power and point to Jesus. Notice with every miracle, there is a revival. It was not about the miracles. It was about the revival that they led to. There in Lydda, people turn to the Lord. Here in, uh, here in Joppa, people turn toward the Lord. That's what we saw in the Gospels, what we saw early on in Acts. We see it once again. We'll see it even more. But there is an even greater miracle uh, from the first scene. We have someone who is bedridden, can walk again. And then the second story, we have someone who was dead, comes back to life. Both of these healings use a similar word. I want you to look at verse 34, uh, where Peter says, arise, and he arose. And then in verse 40 and 41, we see Peter again say, arise. And then she was lifted up, or literally the same word there, she was raised up. Both of these healings in the Greek use two similar words, um, antistemi and antistasis, which is the Greek words that we get raised up and resurrection from. The similar Greek root, stasis, uh, means to, to, be, to, to, to remain still. Anna means to get up or to change that status, right? So we see that this, this resurrection, which of course alludes to resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see a paralyzed person raised back to their feet. We see a dead person raised back to life. And that is, of course, a picture of what the gospel is all about. The emphasis here is on God's power to raise and resurrect people from a dreadful condition otherwise considered permanent. Now, let me make this very clear. The reason why I, if, I'm, if it sounds like I'm underscoring the miracles, I want to make it very clear that the people, the two people that were healed, the bedridden man and then the woman who was dead, both of them eventually got sick and died again. So if this is all about the miracle, then it was a short-lived and a temporary thing. Because if miracles, miracles aren't permanent, you know, Tabitha isn't walking around Jerusalem today saying, I just can't die. Not to underscore what happened to her, but eventually she would grow old and die as, as she had did here. The point of these miracles is to emphasize that God can change lives. That God can take someone from a dreadful condition considered to be permanent and he can change their status. He can resurrect you and me. This story of raising people up does not end in chapter 9, though. These, these stories are never connected. I never connected them until my recent studies. Because we see this word anastasis or resurrection or raise up is going to be repeated in chapter 10. So it's important to notice that this is kind of a stepping stone. We go from the bedridden man to the dead woman. And now somebody else is about to be raised up. 
But what could be more important than somebody that was dead being raised to life? What could be greater than raising someone up from death? What about raising someone up from a debilitating place of sin? What about raising someone up from a gospel-inhibiting prejudice? Who, Who in the world would have something like that? The person experiencing resurrection in chapter 10 may surprise us, but once we get a glimpse of his skepticism of what God called him to do, it won't be that surprising. So chapter 10 picks up with Simon Peter still in Joppa, and he's lodging, as verse 43 tells us, he's lodging with Simon the Tanner. Now, a tanner, of course, is someone who took animal, who skinned animals and made rugs or made garments out of them. Uh, The one thing that we know about tanners is they were not welcome in Jerusalem because they were in a perpetual state of uncleanness. The reason why tanners most likely lived by the sea is because the smell was so awful and the Jewish religion was so intolerant. They had to find somewhere where the wind would blow strong enough And society would be accepting enough of their lifestyle. Now, tanners were sort of a necessary evil in the Jewish world. It was considered unclean to deal with dead animals. Even if you washed your hands a hundred times, dealing with that dead animal would make you unclean perpetually. But they needed rugs. They needed garments. They needed someone to do this job. So there was that tension of what to do with the tanners. Leviticus chapter 11 tells us that everything on which any part of their carcass falls, an animal carcass, shall be unclean. Whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Now, the reason I'm making a point of this is because we're going to read about somebody who's going to be very worried about becoming unclean if he gets around certain things or certain people. But here he is, lodging with somebody who was very unclean. Simon was doing the necessary work. He was helping society, plus he was Jewish. And of course, his name would have made Peter pretty happy because Peter's name was also Simon. Uh, Whether he cared about that or not, I don't know. But he was doing something necessary. He was Jewish. He He was a successful man. His home featured a courtyard and a front gate. He was a very wealthy man. So we don't know what Peter's rationale was, but other than that, he showed grace to Simon. He respected his Jewishness, even if his uncleanness would have been something Peter would make a big deal about if it would have been anybody else. Isn't it true that we have an easier time looking past some people's sins? Isn't it true? Isn't it true that sometimes we make a big deal about people's sins? And I'm not saying we shouldn't. Sometimes we don't make a big deal at all because we don't necessarily feel challenged or uncomfortable about them. Isn't that right? Now, I'm not saying that one side is wrong or one side is right. I'm just saying it's true that sometimes we really point the finger and sometimes we just hang out with them. Why is that? Just keep that in mind. It's important. Because while Peter is lodging there, God prepares us to confront a blind spot in Peter's heart, which is not confronted, which, which if not confronted, would not only hold him back, but would hold the entire church back. So how big of a deal this is. Look at chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people who prayed to God always. 
About the ninth hour, underline that, of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming to him and saying, Cornelius. When he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for God before God as a memorial. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants, a devout soldier from among whom, the, among those who waited on him continually. So when he explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now notice, as God had appeared to Saul, this historical moment, God appears to Cornelius with similar language. He calls him by name, and this episode has an equally important impact on history. Now, Cornelius, we can't get past this. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, a Roman centurion. Now, we know Roman centurions uh, for a, because of a very famous story in the Bible. Uh, but this, Cornelius, this centurion was based out of Caesarea, who had recently placed his faith in the Jewish God, which is a very odd thing, who experiences a vision at the ninth hour of the day, about 3 p.m. I can't tell you how many layers of awesome connective biblical truths are in this passage, but I want to breeze past them as quick as we can. Where do we know Roman centurions from? The Easter story, right? Sent by Pilate to assist the Jewish authorities in putting Jesus to death. But specifically, where do we recall centurions entering the story? And at what time of day did they enter the story? Luke chapter 23 says it was about the sixth hour. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, there, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Matthew and Mark record the centurion saying, maybe it was a different one, but still one of the two on the hill that day. Matthew and Mark have the centurion saying, certainly this man was the son of God. So surely this centurion spread the word of the events that he witnessed that day, the supernatural events that he watched happen around Jesus' death that day. And when, of course, when Jesus rose from the dead two days later, leaving centurions dead in his stead, surely this spread throughout the battalions that watched over Judea. And here we have another centurion who is convinced the Jewish God is the one true God, something I think had recently happened in light wake of this moment in history. Perhaps convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, at the ninth hour of the day, he has a vision from God. The same hour of the day, the previous centurion had made this profession. Another centurion has a vision from God. I don't think those things are insignificant or simply ironic. So God responds to this Roman centurion who is seeking out faith by telling him, I've sent just the guy you need to talk to to a city near you. Now, you may already know, but before we move on, how enthused do you think that Peter, how enthused do you think that Peter is going to be about being in the company of a Roman centurion? If the Romans weren't already unclean enough to the Jews, this one was of a class that had killed Jesus. You say, well, this guy was a believer. I mean, he was seeking out the Lord. 
But how much do you want to bet that Peter would have a hard time looking past Cornelius' race and profession? How much do you want to bet that this wouldn't be easy for Peter? That he might be highly skeptical of his faith and God's ability or overall interest in someone like him. Peter was in for a surprise if this is what was really going on between his head. You see, sometimes we can't see the gaps in our own faith in the mirror. To Peter's defense, what was a gap for him was for a long time considered a point of pride for the Jews. But Jesus made it very clear the things they were clinging to in Acts, we've already seen things were changing and those things the Jews had clung to would be moving, would be fading away. Peter, however, had not changed, had not let go of some of his Jewish traditions. But if the church was going to reach its full potential, if God was going to receive his full glory, Peter had to get this right and rise up from this glarious, glaring, heinous sin that was harbored in his heart. You have to understand the Jews were very nationalistic people and being overrun by stronger, larger armies for generations made them even more hostile towards other nations and toward other ethnicities. They had a word in the Hebrew for anyone that wasn't Jewish. Any non-Jewish person was called a goy or a Gentile, as we call them, or as we call ourselves. They had a word, uh, they were especially resentful and outright hateful towards non-Semitic people, people that were not of the same color as them, especially those that were light-skinned, those that were white. But because of them, these were the aggressors, these were the oppressors, these were the heathens from the north that always overran them. God knew that Peter had no room in his heart to even get near a Gentile's home, let alone be his friend. Peter had never been in fellowship with a Gentile at this point in his life. And here God was sending one to ask Peter about Jesus. What is God doing? God would first confront Peter about this impending conflict. To head off Peter's resistance, God would make clear to him that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In closing, read with me verse 10 or verse 9. The next day, as they went to their home, on their journey and drew near to the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they, were being, while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheep bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were, in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, kill Rise, Peter, kill and eat. That word rise is that word raise up, resurrect. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up to heaven again. Now, Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant Behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked Simon, asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him Cornelius uh, sent from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, 
A just man who fears God and has, done, has a good reputation among the nations of the Jews was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, again, we read this and we just, we just zoom past it without thinking about how big of a deal this was. This is another one of those moments in history that echoes through time and has never stopped being relevant in so many ways, maybe today more than ever. God comes to Peter with an apparent contradiction to the Jewish law, which forbids him from touching unclean animals. Peter proudly claimed he would never do so, even though he was literally in a house where unclean animals were all around him. Peter says, Lord, I will never touch anything unclean. In this moment, we see God address this point of the Jewish law and declare that code being overwritten. You see, the dietary laws were in place to distinguish the Jews from other races. The Jews were not to eat certain things because it made them different from the rest of the world. But that was never God's permanent intention to, to distinguish race from race. His intention was to make Israel different, but through Israel bring the world together, not further separate it. God was never trying to distinguish people by race, but he was working towards uniting us in our shared image, as in the image of God, and defining us by our character. All those Jewish ceremonial laws were overturned the moment Jesus died on the cross in terms of their gatekeeping people from being made righteous. But more importantly, God knew these laws would keep Jews from being in fellowship with Gentiles, which were kept out by the law. The Jews thought that was the point, but again, the cross tore those walls down. The church was meant to bring all people together under the blood of Jesus. This is bigger than food or diet. This is about people, people that God wants to reach that the Jewish Christians were still blocking out and looking down on in the name of religion. God confronts Peter in his prejudices and commands him to rise up, be raised up from this sin. Listen to what Ephesians 2 says about this, because it would always be a problem for the Jews. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's speaking about Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and any other race for that matter, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man or a new humanity in the place of the two, as in something better than race or ethnicity, Christian. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God, again, Jew and Gentile, both to God and one body, that's the church, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. But that hostility has not been killed in our world, has it? Not because the solution hasn't been provided, but because something is still harbored in our hearts. God had a plan to unify all nations around a single Savior. We'll conclude this story next week, but Peter's repentance in response to God's invitation would change the trajectory of the church. Finally, the last block was in place. God called Saul to be the evangelist to the Gentiles, and the church would soon spread to the Gentiles because of Peter's decision to go in this chapter. Not everyone was on board, but through Peter's testimony, they soon would be. Those who don't get on board would literally be in the way. 
in the way of the gospel and the way of grace. Peter was at first a skeptic, an obstacle really, but grace reminded him that all obstacles are removed in Christ. How could he be an obstacle? Listen to this in closing. The following day, they entered inner Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also just a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who had come together. Now listen, this is Peter's confession. So you think I'm just making this up. I'm not putting this tension in the text. Peter confesses in this next verse why God showed him that vision of making unclean things clean, why all this had to happen. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. As in before this chapter, I was steadfast against the church opening up to anybody, but my own race, my own people. God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? And we'll get to that next week. What was surprising to Peter ought to be obvious to us because we are Gentiles, aren't we? We have been saved by grace and grace alone. So here's my moral of the story. May we never be skeptical of what God can do, of who God can save and use. May we always be ready for God to surprise us with his redeeming power. You just never know. Without chapter 10, there's no rest of Acts. There's no rest of the Bible. There's no rest of history as we know it for the church. You and I are not here tonight. You see how every few chapters in Acts, there's just this big landmark moment that says this, is, this changes everything. Now, it doesn't have to be racism like it was for Peter. That's what it was. But he was trained. He was raised that way. I don't know what it might be for us, but what do you need to rise up from that is holding you back from being used by God to reach more people? Maybe sin, something that sets you at odds with others could potentially do this. We don't have to wait for God to interject because God's word's already done that. It goes to show that even the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus had room to grow. The preacher and prophet of God had something between him and the people that God wanted to reach through him. Isn't that that big? Isn't that a big deal that we should pay attention to? So God is saying to us tonight, I want you to rise up. Pastor excuses, pastor skepticism. And I want you to embrace the surprise that might be out there if you would just live by the same grace that you've been given. Again, I don't have time to make clear enough how monumental Acts 10 is. It changes everything. There's a reason why from Acts 10 to Acts 12, this is all that they talk about in the church. Every, for the next two, three weeks, all we're going to talk about is this event because Peter is floored by what God just did. He never expected God to save Gentiles. He had Bible verses that, say it, that said it couldn't happen. He never expected God to save anybody except the Jews. 
And he was surprised when God did. I want you to think about that. He laid down what was in his heart that kept him from being used by God. What are we holding in our hearts that might keep us from being used by God? That we might be skeptical of what God wants to surprise us with. Think about that over the next week. And next week we'll talk even more about the miracle that God worked through somebody who was at first skeptical and was definitely surprised. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this awesome word. It challenges us to our very core. It just happens to be very relevant in our world today. But it's always been relevant because everybody is always held back by something. God, I'm held back by things that I don't think are a big deal, but when I when they allow me or they prevent me from going to somebody that is in need, they are a big, they are the biggest deal. So Father, I confess there's things in my heart that I use as excuses, that I use as points of skepticism. And God, forgive me for that. God, thank you for Peter's humility that he would stand up in front of these people and say, I almost didn't come. I had Bible verses that would have kept me from coming and I would have made myself feel good about it. But God intervened. And God, thank you for intervening. Thank you for changing history. Because we wouldn't be here if you hadn't. God, we love you. We're thankful for your word. May you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen.